If you would, please take out your Bibles once again and join me in turning to Acts chapter 14. As we turn to God's word, let's once again go to him in prayer, asking for his help. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung together, we ask that you would speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Father, we thank you that you speak. Would you open our ears to hear you today, Father? Father, we thank you for your truth, truth that sets us free and truth that continues to shape and fashion us more and more into the image of Jesus, who is the one who is full of grace and truth. Oh, Father, be pleased now to speak to your gathered people, and may we, in hearing, obey, and in obeying, may we glorify you, our Heavenly Father, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are picking up where we left off all the way back on March the 8th when we looked at verses 44 through 52 of chapter 13. We're in our series of looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission, an exposition of the book of Acts. Um, Children, help me out again. The Bible, kind of two parts, one message, promises what? Made and promises kept. And those promises that are made and the promises are kept, they're all yes and all amen in who? In Jesus, in Jesus. And so rightly, the Bible is all about Jesus. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, where we are now, he is preached. In the epistles, the letters, he is explained. In Revelation, he is expected. Here we are in Acts, written by Luke. It's Luke volume two, written about 60 AD. Why is it here in our Bible? Well, literarily, it provides a transition between the four gospels and the epistles, the letters to the churches and letters to individuals. Um, Historically, it's here to record the history of the establishment and expansion of the church, in particular, the history of the mission of the early church. It provides a background for the letters. And practically, it's here to edify believers, to strengthen faith by showing that Christianity is grounded in the acts of God in history. At heart, acts is about what God does. It's about proclaiming good news, not offering good advice. It's to show that the gospel proclaimed then is the same gospel proclaimed now. Acts is 28 chapters, and it can be uh, seen and broken up, kind of here's a structure personally. It's like the first half is Peter, the second half is Paul. You can look at Acts as kind of an expansion geographically from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It can be broken up uh, demographically, uh, Jews, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And it could be thought of progressively as Luke inserts progress reports of the gospel of the growth of the church every so often. Now, what's the best title for this book? Is it Acts of the Apostles? That's a good title, but maybe the accent there is on kind of the human. 
Well, is it the acts of the Holy Spirit? That's a good title, but maybe that's the accent on the divine. Well, that comprehensive title that I've mentioned every now and then is probably worth repeating now. It's it's comprehensive, a little bit cumbersome. You wouldn't want to say this often, but it's helpful to kind of think about it occasionally. The acts of the exalted Christ by the Holy Spirit in the church founded by him through the apostles. Acts is about all that Jesus continues to do and teach now through his spirit in the church. If you would, have your uh, eyes on chapter 13. Uh, That was the beginning of a, a third phase going to the ends of the earth, and it's the start in chapter 13 of Paul's first missionary journey. We looked first at the first 12 verses, the church, the Holy Spirit, and missions, where the church was in Antioch in Syria. The Holy Spirit was present and powerful in the church and on the mission field as the church in Antioch of Syria sent out Paul and Barnabas. In verses 13 through 43, in a message entitled, Free at Last, we looked at Paul's inaugural sermon. And we saw there that the grace of God, that's mentioned in verse 43 of chapter 13, the grace of God is made known in the history of Israel, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the offer of forgiveness that leads to freedom. And then when we were last here in verses 44 through 52, in a divine appointment, we saw that the gospel, of course, is rejected by some, but received, accepted by others. So now we come to chapter 14, and as we will see this week and in the next two weeks, it's a, it's a tale of three cities. First, we're going to be in the city of Iconium. But let's begin by reading, beginning in verse 48 of chapter 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, that is, when Paul said that they were going to be a light to the Gentiles, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet again against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so now we pick up in verse 14, or excuse me, chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they, that is Paul and Barnabas, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. 
So here we are in this travelogue, in this missionary trip. We are in the city of Iconium. It's along the Roman road, the royal road that connects east and west. It's on a highway 90 miles approximately east of Pisidian Antioch, where they last were. It's in the large province of Galatia. And if you think with me for a moment about our time in Galatians, when Paul had to write that letter to these churches, this is some of the historical background to that letter. Now, the ministry pattern that had made itself known in Pisidian Antioch was repeated here in Iconium. And Luke records quite briefly the account of their visit here in this next major town. And he provides a summary kind of of their visit. And make no mistake, Paul was strategic in why he went to this city. It's a commercial city. It's, it's, even though it's, in Roman, uh, it's a Roman city-state, it's got heavy Greek influence. And he knew if the gospel could get a foothold there, just by normal life, the gospel would spread as people came into this city and stayed in this city and left this city. It was strategic um, on Paul's part to go to this place as they left Pisidian Antioch. And as usual, we read that they went to the synagogue and there they spoke in such a way, that is, they spoke with the power and the boldness of the Spirit. Now I want you to look with me at the middle of this passage, at the end of verse 3, or the middle of verse 3. You see the word, the phrase, the expression, the word of His grace. The word of His grace. Now, At the beginning and at the end of the account, the bookends of this narrative account, you hear they spoke and they preached. It's all about the ministry of the word, the the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's at the beginning, they spoke, and at the end, they, they continued to preach. And right in the middle, right in the middle, Luke uses this expression, The word of his grace. The word of his grace. Now Luke's use of it here may be deliberate to reflect the prominence of grace in Paul's message. The only other time this expression, the word of his grace, is used is in Acts 20, 24, when Paul, knowing that he's going to be departing from the Ephesian elders, he commits them to the word of of his grace. That was Paul's last words to the Ephesian elders that he left with tears, knowing that he wouldn't see them again. It's, he committed them to the word of his grace. Grace, my goodness, it's the first word in the name of our church. And the irreligious people out there find it hard to believe. The religious people out there, I think, often don't want to believe it. Well, neither the irreligious or the religious can believe, of course, unless they've been given a new heart. A new heart. And we've seen that thus far in the preaching of the gospel, that God is pleased to change hearts, hearts that can receive and understand and embrace the gospel. They don't have a speech recorded here in verse 1, but it's probably along the lines of Paul's inaugural sermon that we saw in in chapter 13 
that, that theme of God's gracious act in the person and work of Jesus and forgiveness and provision of life in Jesus Christ. Again, at the center of this narrative account is the word of his grace. Now, Paul could have said, right? Or, or excuse me, Luke could have characterized this the word of his law, the word of his wrath, the word of his displeasure. Is God's law important? Yes. Is God wrathful against sin? Yes. Is God, is there a displeasure in God at times? Yes. But what was chosen? What is central? What is at the heart? The word of his grace. Now in this brief narrative account, I think we will see two things. Two things that the word of his grace, the word of his grace does. First, it separates people. The word of his grace separates all people. Because you see in verses 1 and 2, there's a response to the gospel. Some believe and receive, and some disbelieve and reject. You see in verses 1 and 2, the response to the gospel, the response to this bold proclamation is in terms of belief. Now, in Acts, there's times where it's characterized by repentance, a turning, but here it's characterized in terms of belief. And at first, of course, there's good success, but then there's bitter opposition. Opposition comes up as usual. And here, notice that unbelief, unbelief is not passive. It it becomes active unbelief. Look at this language. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. They stir up. They, they, very unusual language. They poison the mind. They, they are, are, are putting in things that are false and untrue. Their minds. You know, we're called to renew, that, uh, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And here, unbelievers are poisoning the minds of those who are hearing this message. Now, that, op, uh, that interesting that opposing Jews would seek Gentile support shows how seriously they took the threat of the preaching of the gospel. You guys have been around long enough. You know the difference between Jews and Gentiles and their relationships. And you know how, especially in, in, in Ephesians, where Paul speaks of Christ removing the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile through his death on the cross, bringing peace, making peace, proclaiming peace. But here, the unbelieving Jews enlist the support of the Gentiles to oppose Paul and Barnabas and oppose others who are believing the gospel. Can you all believe that? That the gospel is threatening That the good news of God's grace in Christ Jesus is a threat. So much that Jews would ally themselves with Gentiles to oppose these missionaries. And it's clear again that the gospel is not some take it or leave it benign message. It demands a response. In the first chapter of Mark, Jesus says, the time is at hand, the the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. It demands a response. 
So notice again, there's a response to the gospel. There's, you believe it, you don't believe it. But then sides are taken. And in verse four, Luke characterizes it like this. But the people of the city were divided. The city was divided. The people of the city were divided. And here's where we get the word schism. Uh, This is an original Greek word uh, that A schism, of course, is a split or division between strongly opposed sections or parties caused by differences of opinion or belief. And indeed, differences of belief are causing a division. A division. And interestingly, here we are in 2021, and you can't but read a newspaper or a magazine or listen to the news on the radio or hear from a friend. Division. Division. Are we the United States of America, or are we becoming the divided states of America? There's division politically, of course, culturally, but here the division is because of the gospel. Now, kids, most of you are back in school right now, right? Do you guys have favorite courses to take? Do you like lean towards some course or another course, or do you like all of them? Well, one course in the gospel curriculum, one course that we've already seen in Acts is gospel math. We've seen addition, right? The Lord is adding to the church members. We see that in chapters 2 and 5 and 11 that the Lord adds. We also see multiplication. We see it in chapters 6 and 9 and 12 that Luke writes that the Lord multiplied the church. So here's gospel math. You've got addition, you've got multiplication, but here we go. We've got division as well in gospel math. Hard to believe, huh? Something so good, something so wonderful, something so life-giving, nonetheless divides And of course, gospel math goes along with that other great course that you see in Ephesians, you see in Galatians, you see in Romans, and you see in Acts, gospel grammar. The indicative, the statement of fact, the imperative, what we are called to do. It reminds us that everything we are called to do, its foundation is what God has already done. It's the acts of God in history. So you've got gospel grammar in Acts and you've got gospel math in Acts and here you've got division. I think this is a good point to just mention briefly that what you see here where you see this struggle between belief and unbelief is in the church. In the church, in the visible church, in the church that you and I can see with our eyes, there are believers and there are unbelievers in the church because you read now at now at Iconium they entered together with the Jew into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed a great number but not all but maybe some of those were nonetheless in the church some believed and some didn't um It's Jesus and the parable of the soils. It's Jesus talking about the wheat and the weeds growing together until the harvest. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25 of the church, speaks clearly that the church is sometimes 
more and sometimes less visible. It's subject both to mixture and error. And here, you're going to see in this church believers and unbelievers. Um, Think with me that there's going to be separation now and there's certainly going to be separation at the harvest. Uh, Think about the proclamation of the gospel. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1 verses 22 through 25, Paul says we're proclaiming Christ crucified. You know, Jews are looking for signs and, and the Greeks, the Gentiles, they're looking for wisdom. But we preach a crucified Christ that's a stumbling block to both Jews and its foolishness to Greeks. And if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaks of the aroma of Christ. The aroma of Christ. And for believers, that fragrance is attractive. But for unbelievers, it's the stench of death and it repels them. The aroma of Christ. I think it's good to ask ourselves, you know, what what aroma are we giving off individually? What aroma are we giving off as a church? Are we presenting the gospel in such a way that Jesus is attractive? Or are we presenting the gospel in such a way that, that it's repelling? Because people may be saying, oh, I can't do this. You want me to do this and this and this and that and everything? I, I can't do it. But if you present the gospel as Jesus presents the gospel, as Paul presents the gospel, and as God is at work in the hearts of people, mysterious as it is, it's attractive. So the proclamation of the gospel does have divisive effects. Now, while the word of his grace separates all people and sides are taken, the word of his grace also does something else. And this is the second point. It secures some people. The word of his grace secures some people. It sustains them. It strengthens them. Now look with me at verse 3. So the unbelieving Jews and the, uh, have stirred up the Gentiles. They poisoned their minds. And what's Paul's response? So they remained there a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. The word of his grace in Paul's life, in Barnabas' life, secured them. So they stayed where they were. And it was because of the rise of this opposition that they felt they must stay as long as possible. Why? Because this is an infant church, and you know how infants need care. They need feeding. They can't do really anything for themselves. They need people alongside them. They were going to depart, as we will see, only when they were absolutely forced to do so. And they stayed, in fact, longer in Iconium than anywhere else on the first missionary journey. They stayed long time to ground new believers in what? In the word of his grace. In the word of his grace. You know, whether it's unpopularity or persecution, it did not intimidate them or silence them into flight. However, 
However, we also see in our text, and you can look with me at verse 6, they fled. They stayed longer, then they fled. You know, they are secure in Christ in the word of his grace, so they stay. They are secure in Christ, and so they fled to another town. You know, Paul and Barnabas are being rejected here because the message that they are proclaiming is rejected. It's just like Jesus, and he said this was going to happen. Forewarned is forearmed. They're confident. You know, I had to stop and think. Um, Paul is being opposed, and as we will see, there's a threat on his life. But you know what? He doesn't consider these fellow Jews his enemies. You know, in Romans chapter 9, Paul says he wished he would be cut off and accursed for the sake of his countrymen, his fellow Jews. You know, this and that is happening today, and we're, we're pointing at other people and saying, enemy, enemy, enemy. Of all places, the church should be recognizing that we do have an enemy who roars around like a, a, a lion. And behind the, the persecuting um, activities of, of people, sure, there, there's an enemy behind that. But Paul, after being persecuted by his own people, he wishes that he was cut off so that others could be brought in. I mean, isn't it like Jesus himself? I mean, what's happening on the cross? Jesus is cut off for a time so that others could be brought in. Paul is just modeling his savior. You know, they may be enemies of the gospel here, but they weren't Paul's enemies. They're harassed. They're, 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 they're physically intimidated. Um, look again at verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe. It was only when they recognized that they were about to be assaulted that they decided to depart, and it was a prudent decision. This is a plot. It's a, it's a cooperative effort on Jews and Gentiles. And once again, the gospel is threatening to them, and they plot. This is not a conspiracy theory, my friends. Because most conspiracy theories could be dismissed pretty quickly with just a little bit of evidence. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is a real conspiracy. They are plotting to take them out. They are plotting to stone them. They are somehow going to bring up charges that, that, that they are teaching falsehood, that they are blasphemers. And the Jewish answer for that is stoning, a mob justice. It's a real conspiracy. And they learned of it. And they responded to it. You know, Paul and Barnabas are brave and courageous, but they are not foolish. They are prepared to endure opposition, but they are not somehow misguided masochists wanting you know, pain and punishment on them. And they're not trying to achieve virtue through martyrdom. Now ask yourself this question. Are Paul and Barnabas cowards for running? I don't think so. You know, the Lord protects his children, to be sure, but he gives us, as it were, common sense for a reason. You know, even in Matthew 10, earlier in the chapter, and when this happens, flee. They're not cowards. 
They recognize that their time and place to die is not there and then. You know, sometimes God doesn't call his people to stand and lose their lives, but rather escape from the danger that he has revealed to them. As I was studying this, I thought of Mary and Joseph. And where did they, what happened to them in their young marriage? They fled to Egypt. Should Mary and Joseph have stayed or should they have fled to Egypt? Should Paul in chapter 9, should he have stayed? No, some of the other disciples got him out of town. His life was in danger. So we see they remained for a time, but at a time they also fled. And, and here I think it's time to bring up, it's not the either or, either this or that, but rather it's the both and. You know, every, every month I read through Proverbs, and every 26th of the month I read Proverbs 26. And it's usually my favorite day. Why? Proverbs 26.4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Sounds pretty good, right? That's clear, right? Answer not a fool. No questions, right? That's what we're to do. Then you read verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it? That's a good question. You know, in my limited ministry over a couple of decades or some years, it sure seems that for some people that I know and interact with, everything is black and white. Everything in the Christian life is a black and white matter. It's yes or no, it's do this or don't do that. You know, if the Christian life could be lived like that, then we wouldn't need faith and we certainly wouldn't need Jesus. At worst, we are atheists, but at best, at times, we are practical deists. Knowing all the right doctrine, but as that article that's included in the bulletin says, it's, it's, it's outside of a vital living relationship with God our Father through the ministry of the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ in his spirit. You know, if you, if you want to think about that more, go to John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, sometimes in life there really are gray areas. Should I stay or should I go comes to mind. Well, it depends, right? It depends. Should I stay? Well, yes, this infant church needs to be equipped and trained and cared for. Should I go? Yes, because if I die here, then the Lord's purposes may not be carried out. It depends. You know, people who are secure in Christ will ask for the wisdom that they need in order to know what they are to do. And I believe scripture says that if we ask for wisdom and humility and trust in God, he will give us that wisdom. This past Thursday, I participated in a monthly prayer time with my fellow PCA ministers in the greater Cincinnati area, and it's always a wonderful time to be together and pray with and for one another, and one of the common things that has come out is every single one of us in churches from Dayton and Cincinnati 
in northern Kentucky, every one of us is greatly challenged by ministry in the time of a pandemic. Everybody's exhausted. Everybody's not necessarily knowing what to do. And there's competing this and that, and people have this view and that view. It's just exhausting. And Larry Hoop, who you, who you all know as he presided over our organization service, said he talks to pastors all around the country, and it's the same thing. Oh, for the Lord to give us wisdom. Did y'all notice this traffic light out here? It looks like it's on its way out, right? Good call, because sometimes I waited for a long time there with nobody coming, right? It's a four-way stop now. But, you know, I was thinking about ministry in a pandemic. It's kind of like coming up on a, a stoplight that's out, right? The stoplight's out. What do you do? Do you speed up and just fly through it thinking, well, I've got the green? Or do you maybe slow down, come to a stop, look around, proceed with caution? I think that's what we're supposed to do, right? When we come to a stoplight that's out, we come to a stop, we look around, and we proceed with caution. And here in Acts chapter 14, they're asking, as it were, to God, what, what do we do? We stay and we are with this infant church, but no, they're threatening our lives and we're out of here. And you know what? Paul and Barnabas are absolutely secure. They're absolutely confident. They're not afraid whether they stay or whether they go, because they know it depends. It depends. You see, this word of his grace, it divides all people, but my goodness, this word of his grace sustains, strengthens, secures believers. We heard earlier in Matthew 10, Jesus came not for peace, but for division. Remember, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, Jesus comes to divide. But you know what? Remember John 10, 10? Why does Jesus say he came? That they may have life and have it more abundantly. And what do we read in chapter 11 of Matthew? The very next chapter after no peace but division, what do we read? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Wow, the one who wields a sword calls people to come to him and find their rest in him. You see, with Jesus, it's not just division only, it's unity as well. Unity among those who know him and believe in him. I love our shorter catechism, and I love this question 86. What is faith in Jesus Christ? You know the answer. We all know it. Do we really know it? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel for salvation, past, present, 
and future. You see, Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming the gospel and those believers out there, the ones in whom God had appointed for eternal life, those believed and they rested in Christ alone. They recognized that all they had was Christ. They rested upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. It's not resting upon their obedience. It's not resting upon their family name. It's not resting upon their promise to do good. It's resting upon Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel, the gospel that Peter and Barnabas and others are proclaiming. You see, my friends, the gospel being the word of his grace, which as we will sing in a moment, will comfort us through. That is, will secure us in this life and in death. Indeed, for those who know Jesus, who are presently resting in him, whether we live or whether we die, whether we stay or whether we go, we are the Lord's. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this brief, routine, usual narrative account of the ministry of the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth in this town of Iconium, a town that to this day is there in the fourth largest city, urban center in Turkey. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to use what happened there and then in the life of the early church to strengthen and encourage us in our ministry among one another, in our ministry to our community, and indeed our ministry to the world. Oh, Father, help us to recognize more and more that, yes, the gospel does divide believers and unbelievers, but, oh, the gospel unites believers because all we have is Christ. Oh, Father, make our unity more real today. And may that security that we have in the word of his grace only grow and make us bold witnesses to the grace of the gospel in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We respond.